Uh, good morning. Our scripture reading today will be from Matthew uh, chapter 5. For using the uh, Bible that's provided in the pew, uh, that would be on page 852. It will be Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body be cast into hell. I'm going to come down here because when I stand up there, I feel so very far away from all of you who like to sit in the back. So uh, we'll come a little bit closer for that. But I don't know about you, but we had a great morning of stories, didn't we? I love to hear stories. And I thought we heard some great stories this morning from the Blackwell sharing about the stories of God working in, in their ministry. And it was so, so encouraging to hear those stories. And we just got to hear some more stories about God working in the hearts and lives of one of our little girls and one of our, one of our adults here at church. And I don't know about you, but I love stories. And, and, I, and I love uh, to read stories. And, and story really resonates with us, doesn't it? And you can see in the bulletin in the title, you understand what we're talking about today. And as I was getting ready to speak this morning, I was looking for some stories this week. I was laying in bed Wednesday night and I was looking for some illustrations or some for some stories or some things to add to what we're going to talk about today about the topic of adultery. And, uh, and so I'm there and I'm, I'm surfing the internet looking for some, some different maybe illustrations or things like that. And my wife leans over and looks at me and says, hopefully there are not any personal stories you're going to share this morning. And, uh, and, and I assured her that, the, that there wasn't. Uh, but, uh, but we love stories and we love the stories of, of, of people and individuals. And when I, when I say the name Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, Roger Clemens, Alex Rodriguez. What are the stories that come to mind when I say those names? Probably for a lot of us, the thing that they have in common and the story that we resonate is we, we would say all of those individuals are world-class athletes. They're amazing athletes that have done amazing things. They have won uh, team championships. Uh, their, their teams have been successful. They have been successful personally winning Cy Young's, MVP awards, scoring titles, and the list goes on and on and on. And we would very much quickly resonate with their story of athletic success. For some of us, we followed their careers very closely. Uh, Michael Jordan had one of those uh, commercials a few years back, uh, a few years ago, and, and it said, "Want to be like Mike? If I could be like Mike." And, and the whole purpose was, yeah, we want to excel on the basketball court like Michael Jordan. You know, all those individuals that I just read are world-class athletes, but you know what? They have something else in common. They weren't world-class husbands. 
all those individuals, for all their success on the field and, and on the court, they weren't successful at home. They committed adultery. And those are the stories that maybe we forget about or we overlook. But I guarantee those stories have major impacts on the people that were closest to them, their wives, their kids, their, their, their friends and family members. And they may, they may deny it, but those stories changed their lives. And I would say they changed their lives not for the better. And so this morning we are in this process, this journey that we're taking over the next few months of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we call this series Life According to Jesus. And we get to this point in the sermon. Last, last week we talked about murder or anger. And, and I'm kind of angry at Pastor Dick because he let me talk about this this week. He took anger and he, he gave me adultery. And, and so I'm a little angry with him. So I'm still trying to work on our, our lesson from last week. But, uh, um, uh, but we get to the point and, and we see Jesus' words on adultery. And really, that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to focus on Jesus' words and how he addresses adultery and, and realizing that as Jesus was communicating the Sermon on the Mount, he is communicating uh, to us as believers. He's kind of communicating to us and telling us, you know what, there's a higher standard that he's calling us to. And he wants to communicate that clearly with us this morning. And so in your notes and in your Bibles, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to camp out at verses 27 to 30 here uh, for a few moments this morning. And, and the first part, we're going to look at verse 27, and we're going to focus on the law and the lie. We're going to focus on the law and the lie in verse 27. It says this, you have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Now, as, as we have gone through this, this series and did some background information, Pastor Dick told us that uh, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd, and they're sitting, around, sitting on the, the hillside. And so it's a Jewish crowd, and Jesus first off, leads off with the law. He shares the seventh commandment from the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus 20. Don't commit adultery. Now this is a Jewish audience, and they were very familiar with this commandment. They understood this. After all, the whole Jewish tradition and law was built on the Ten Commandments and Moses' law. And so when, when, when uh, Jesus says, don't commit adultery, they're already tracking I'm like, yeah, that's, we, we learned that in Sunday school, right? Uh, when growing up, we, you know, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. We, we know what you're talking about, Jesus. We're tracking with you. And, and, and so they understood where Jesus was going. And they understood really what adultery was. They understood what adultery was. And, and basically adultery was a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse. And so Jesus is talking to the crowd and he says, don't commit adultery. And they are thinking, you know what? We've heard that. We know what it is. Adultery is having a sexual relationship with someone other than our spouse. And, and the law of Moses uh, forbids that. The law of Moses looks down upon that. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there were, uh, you know, uh, for, for those who have committed adultery, the penalty was death. Uh, I mean, that was pretty, it was pretty severe. They, they had a held, held a pretty severe uh, opinion of adultery. And so, and so his, his audience would have been very familiar with the law. Don't commit adultery. But you know what? His audience would also have been very familiar with the lie. And oftentimes we focus on the law in this verse, but we don't focus on the lie. 
you know, the Jewish religious leaders, when they think about uh, the law, they buy into the lie that the law is just this checklist of do's and don'ts. That they, that they gauge their spirituality and religious uh, uh, um, behavior and righteousness based on the fact of their eternal actions. And so the lie here is, is this idea of self-righteousness, that I am righteous if all my external actions line up with what God wants it to be. And so it was this spiritual checklist that, that, that Jesus, uh, you know, that, that, that when Jesus was talking about the law, that I think that the crowd just kind of went into that, that, that moment of just thinking, you know what, I know what he's talking about. You know, he's talking about don't commit adultery, and I haven't committed adultery, so I am good. I'm good with God. I'm right with God, that everything is all right. And, you know, this is self-righteousness, that if I do enough good actions, I will be good. And as Jesus is talking in this first verse, I can just see the people in the audience buying the lie. Can't you? Because guess what? Some of us sitting here this morning, as we talk about uh, this matter, we're buying the lie too. Because we're sitting here and thinking, Adultery. Well, I didn't commit that, so I'm good. Next, next topic. Yeah, let's fast forward through this one and get to the next topic, because I'm good. And, and, and really, Jesus is, is trying to, co- to communicate to the people and trying to tell the people that, uh, and, and really what, what the, the Sermon on the Mount is really trying to talk about is this whole concept of self-righteousness. And, and how the religious leaders and the Jewish leaders were focused on self-righteousness, that if I do enough good things, I'll be good enough. We heard about some, some, some uh, uh, from the Blackwells when they shared this morning about some of the people that they run into in their ministry think that if they do enough good things, they'll earn their way to heaven. That's the lie of self-righteousness. And, and I can just picture the crowd just buying into that lie as Jesus opens, uh, opens this part of the sermon and, and shares this first verse. Self-righteousness was a problem in Jesus' day. And you know what? It's a problem in our day today, too. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 9 through 14, he says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give, tenth of, I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, it's, it's obvious from this parable that the Pharisee was the self-righteous one. He was the one that was using the law as a checklist of things that he just needed to get through to earn his way to heaven. And it was obvious that the tax collector was truly pursuing a relationship with God and truly had an understanding of who he was before God, that he was... A nobody. And it was, it's just a very clear illustration of what self-righteousness is. It's not just going through the motions. It's not just having the right actions. But, but really what God wants from us is, is a righteous heart. A heart that loves Him and is focused on Him. 
And so self-righteousness focuses on the condition of our actions, and true righteousness focuses on the condition of our hearts. And from this, this illustration from, from Luke chapter 18, it was obvious that the Pharisee was the one that was full of self-righteousness and full of pride. And was obviously the tax collector was the one full of God's righteousness and pure before him because he recognized his true standing before a holy God. As we go through the rest of this, this um, message this morning, let's not just focus on the, uh, the, the external action of adultery. Let's not get buy into the lie of self-righteousness. Let's realize that God is concerned about our heart condition that our hearts and minds are on Him by spending time with Him in His Word and in prayer. God wants our hearts. He's concerned about our heart's condition. And if He has our hearts, if our hearts are pure before Him, then our actions will follow suit. And so as Jesus starts off this message, He starts off with the law, the seventh commandment, and He addresses the lie that lots of people were thinking as He communicated that. The lie of self-righteousness. And he goes on. He doesn't just stop there. And he, and he gets to the kind of the, uh, the, the meat of this, of this passage in verse 28. And he says this, But I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And now we move on to looking leads to lusting. And now Jesus raises the bar. Now, now we get to the point in, in, in his sermon where, where Jesus... Uh, takes the law or the Jewish law and he brings it up a notch. And he communicates to his audience that there is a higher standard. There is a higher standard in regards to sexual purity and sexual sin. And Jesus wants to clearly communicate that to us this morning, that he has a higher standard that he wants us uh, to keep in mind. Uh, Sexual purity simply isn't measured by purity of action, It's measured by purity of heart and mind. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. In in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, he alludes to this concept of sexual purity being being measured by purity of heart and mind, not, not measured simply by actions. And he says this in Mark 7. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, for from within, out of a man's heart come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. See, Jesus is, is, is raising the bar and he's saying, you know what, sexual purity just isn't about your actions. It's about the condition of your heart. And he was really speaking to really the heart of the matter here. And so he's asking us today, what are our hearts like in regards to sexual purity? It's just not about have, you know, the external actions of committing adultery, but Jesus is speaking to our hearts. He's concerned about our heart condition. And you know what? We live in a world and there is a warfare going on for our heart. Each and every day, wherever we go, there's a warfare for our hearts. There's a battle for our hearts and our minds. You know, Satan has, uh, is, is so quickly fighting this battle, and he wants, us to get, he wants to get us to trip up. 
in our fight against sin, the fiercest and most important battle takes place in our hearts and minds. Because if sin controls our hearts and minds, it will control our thoughts, and eventually it will control our actions. The fiercest battle takes place for the battle for your heart. The battle for your heart and the battle for your mind. Our heart is important territory to defend. Solomon in Proverbs 4, a very familiar passage that we probably learned as, as a child, but Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. That's one of the first verses, probably as a little kid, that we memorized. And the reason that Solomon communicated that important truth is because our hearts are important. There's a battle going on for our hearts. And Solomon tells us, you know what, we need to guard our heart because it's valuable. We need to guard our heart because it's valuable. It's the core of our being where our thoughts and decisions happen and are made. So Solomon says, guard your heart. It's valuable. Solomon says, guard your heart because it's your life source. You know what? Your heart overflows and affects every area of your life, including your thoughts, your words, and your actions. What transpires on the outside, our external actions, come from our heart. And so Solomon says, hey, guard your heart because it's your life source. You can tell a lot about a person's actions. You can tell a lot about a person's heart by their actions. And, and it's your life source. It's kind of your compass. It directs you where, where you're going. And so Solomon says, guard your heart. Finally, Solomon says, guard your heart because it's consistently, consistently under attack by the enemy. You know, Satan is limited in power and resources. He is not all-powerful like God is. But you know what? He's crafty, and he knows where to attack, doesn't he? He knows where to hit us in our weak spots. And so Solomon says, guard your heart because it's under attack. Uh, he wants to corrupt our hearts. The, he, he is battling for our hearts that we would give in to sin because he knows once he has our hearts, once he, once he has our hearts focused on sin, It'll impact the rest of our life. And as believers, he knows that, you know, once we've trusted Jesus Christ, he can't take away our salvation. So what he's interested in doing is tripping us up. He's inter interested in us uh, being, being focused on sin and living for sin so that our testimony and ultimately his testimony is not real powerful. That we be a bad testimony to those around us. Popular proverb says this, sow a thought and reap an act, sow an act and reap a habit, sow a habit, reap, the, reap a character, sow a character and reap a destiny. This, this perfectly illustrates Jesus' main thrust in this passage. No matter where it ends, sin always begins in the heart. It always begins with the evil thoughts and evil sinful pursuits in our hearts and our minds. And there's a battle going on for that. And Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, he is raising the standard when it comes to sexual purity. And he says, I'm not just considered about your, I'm not just concerned about your actions, but more importantly, I'm concerned about your heart. Is your heart sexually pure? Is your heart free from sexual temptation and sexual sin? Now in this verse, he goes on and he talks about this whole concept of looking leads to lusting. And the word looking is, is, is a very familiar word. It's a word that we're common, uh, that we understand, and, and, but it refers to the continuous process or repeated gazing. When he says looking, that's what he's talking about. It's this repeated gazing. 
this continued process of looking at something. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says looking. And then he goes on to another L word in the, in the passage, lusting. And that's to crave or long for things forbidden. And so when you put that together, really what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about uh, the continual looking or gazing at a woman to, satis- to satisfy his longing for sexual satisfaction and pleasure. And Jesus is saying, you know what, that is wrong. That is sin. That is wrong. He's talking about the man who entertains himself with TV shows or movies that have sexual situations in it. He's talking about the man who goes to the beach because of all the scantily clad individuals that he'll see there at the beach. He's talking about the man who sits secretly in his office or or den or his room at home and scours the internet for pornography. He's talking talking about this concept of, of continuous looking and craving after something that's forbidden. And that's what Jesus is, is trying to communicate. And that's what he's saying, that this is sin and it's wrong. It's sin and it's wrong. It's premeditated and it's purposeful and it's looking to satisfy pleasure. And that's the type of sin that Jesus is addressing in this passage. You know, Jesus is not speaking of, uh, about the uncontrollable, uh, unexpected or uncontrollable exposure, exposure to sexual temptation. He's really not talking about that. I mean, uh, we, we come face to face with on, on an everyday basis where we are unexpectedly or uncontrollably in a situation come up to a, some kind of sexual temptation. And at that moment, we have the choice. We have the choice that we either can go into this looking that leads to lusting, which leads to sexual sin in our minds, or we can focus our gaze somewhere else. We can, we can bounce our eyes somewhere else and, and, and run from that sexual temptation. That's not what, what Jesus is talking about here. And we're all familiar with that because we face that on a daily basis. But what he's talking about is when we're faced with those sexual temptations, those sexual situations, do we give in to them and just go along? Do we just dive right in and, 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 we, and we feast with our eyes? on situations and things that we know are wrong for our own sexual pleasure and sexual satisfaction. As I was thinking about this process of looking that leads to lusting, I, I, have, I couldn't help but think of King David. 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 4, says this, In the spring, at the time when kings went off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then she went back home. I think this is a great illustration of looking that leads to lusting. David couldn't sleep that night, and he was on the palace roof and trying to maybe get some exercise, or he was tired of laying in bed, so he wanted to get up and go for a walk. And he walked around, and he happened to come across the beautiful Bathsheba that was bathing in plain sight. That was one of those unexpected things that he came across. He wasn't necessarily looking for that. He came across it. But David didn't 
fix his gaze somewhere else. David didn't run from that temptation. What did David do? A look led to lusting. He, dr- he drank deep of that situation. And that, and that situation kind of grabbed a hold of his heart. And, 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 and Bathsheba's beauty grabbed a hold of his heart. And he wanted to know more. So he sent someone to find out who is this person. They found out it was Bathsheba who was married to one of his, one of his generals, one of his, one of his men fighting his battle that he should have been fighting. And he was already gone. The sexual sin had, had, had controlled his heart, and it wasn't just enough to look anymore in lust. He wanted her for himself. So he sent for her, and he slept with her. And we know the story continues, and, and because of that choice, David, faced, David and his family faced a lot of consequences. But it was all because he gave in to sexual sin. It's all because that look led to lusting. And it led to a very, very dangerous place. Jesus is raising the bar and he's talking to us. And man, he's talking to us and he's saying, you know what, we need to be careful. We need to guard our hearts. We need to make sure that, that we're not like David and allow a look to lead to lust, to lead to an action. But you know what? I, you know, I think it's not just talking to men here. Uh, he, used, he used guys as an example, but ladies, you know what? It's, it's also, you're also capable of looking lead to lusting. You're also capable of, of, of this whole kind of same process that, that you, could, you, you, know, you could allow a gaze to become a fascination to lead to some kind of lusting. Uh, women are equally, equally susceptible to, lu- to, to lustful looking. And they're also susceptible to inciting men to lust. And I know this isn't really what this passage is talking about, but I'll, I'll give you something extra here. Because in my study, I came across an author by the name of Arthur Pink, and he made this statement, and I think it's worth noting here. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after, are not less, but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it's not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must be the guilt of a great majority of modern mistresses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passion of men. And how much greater still is the guilt of most mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. I thought that that was a good point that, that kind of went along with this, that, that ladies, as our sisters in Christ, you can help us out. You can help us out. You know, you, you can help us pursue sexual purity by, by yourself pursuing modesty. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be, working together to pursue purity. And I thought that was, that, that was uh, uh, beneficial to mention. So, so Jesus is raising the bar here, and he's saying, you know what? Sexual purity is not just about an act of adultery. It's about the condition of your heart. And don't allow looking lead to lusting, to forbid something that is, for, to, 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 to crave something that's forbidden, to want to go after something that's forbidden, to pursue sexual sin in your minds, because if you pursue it in your heart and your minds, it'll eventually come to, come to fruition in your actions. And find the last two verses, he talks about the liberation. He talks about where we can find some freedom and some deliverance. It says in verse 29 and 30, it says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. 
It's better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go to hell. You know, in these two verses, Jesus shares a very tough and radical solution that will help provide freedom and deliverance from from lusting and sexual sin. He's he's very, very clear, and, and it's a very strong message. And it's important to realize that Jesus is not saying this to be interpreted literally. He is not encouraging mutilation. Uh, he is not telling us that he wants, to cut, wants us to gouge our eyes out or cut our, cut our hands off. You know, he is speaking figuratively and he's saying, you know what, the things that tempt us or make us uh, susceptible to sexual temptation, we need to get rid of them. We need to take drastic action and get rid of those things from our lives. Uh, in the Jewish culture, it gives you this idea of the right eye and the right, and the right um, hand. And he says, well, why does he mention that? It's, it's to illustrate this drastic measure that he wants us to take in, in regards to getting rid of sin. In the Jewish culture, the right eye and the right hand represent a person's best, most precious faculties. The right eye represents one's best vision. The right hand represents one be, one's best skills. And so what Jesus is really saying here is that we need to be willing to give up whatever is necessary, even the things that are most important to us, the things that are, that are most cherished, we need to give them up in our pursuit of spiritual purity, of, of sexual purity, that, that we need to be willing to make some sacrifices to pursue sexual purity. And that's what Jesus is talking about. We need to take a radical stance when it comes to dealing with sexual sin. And so Jesus is really saying in this whole concept of if your right eye caused you a sin or your right hand cut it off, he's saying, you know what? Take a drastic measure. Be willing to do whatever you need to do to pursue sexual purity, to not give in to temptation. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about um, a guy from the Old Testament, Job, who took a radical approach to sin. Job 31.1, Job said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Job understood looking leads to lusting. He understood the battle for, uh, for, for sexual temptation and the struggle with sexual sin. And so he said, I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes that I'm not going to look improperly at a lady. When I talk to our students, um, they hear me, and when we talk about sexual temptation, they hear me mention this, this, this quote a lot of times. A look leads to a thought, which leads to an action. When we talk about sexual temptation, I talk about that all the time. And really, that's what Job's talking about. When making a covenant with, with our eyes, he's, saying, he's really saying, you know what? We need to be careful what we look at. Because what we look at, we think about. And what we think about, eventually, we'll act on. And so it's so, so very important to keep that in mind. Now, obviously, sin is a hard issue, but I think it's important to realize that, you know, it said the eyes are the gateway to the heart. And so in our quest to pursue sexual purity, I think one of the things that we need to do is make a covenant with our eyes and with our whole bodies, not to pursue things that would trip us up and cause us to fall into sexual temptation. You know, the more we're exposed to this world and its view of what's appropriate sexually and and uh, the tendency, the more tendency we have to compromise God's standards. 
We live in a sex-crazed world, don't we? Skin is in and Victoria has no more secrets. And that's the world that we find ourselves in each and every day. That's the world that we go to battle with each and every day. It's not that we necessarily anymore, we need to go looking for sexual temptation. Sexual temptation finds us. And so as Jesus is, is talking to his listeners and he's talking to us today, he's talking about the area of the heart. And he's saying, what is the condition of your heart? Is it full of sin? Is it full of sexual sin? Are you giving in to sex, sexual temptation? And he's saying, you know what? We need to take drastic actions. We need to take drastic measures and provide ways and do things to avoid those things. That's what he is talking about. Like Job, we must make a covenant with our eyes and every parts of our body to avoid lust and sexual immorality and pursue purity. We need to realize that sexual sin starts in our hearts and our minds and it leads to our actions. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you come in today with this and, and where you stay, state with this, but I venture to say if you have a pulse, which I'm hoping most of you do this morning still, you're not, you're not sleeping, you're still with us and things like that, uh, but if most of us who, who are here and have, pulse, have a pulse and live in this world, we come face to face with this temptation on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. And my hope and my prayer to you today is that, you know what, if, if you're here this morning in the battlefield for your heart and you're losing that battle, my hope and my prayer today is that, that you wouldn't be discouraged, but that you would realize that God can forgive and he will forgive and he can give you the strength to overcome that battle. As we think about taking drastic measures and, and, and pursuing purity in the area of, of, of sexual sin and sexual temptation, if you're struggling and you need someone to talk with, Pastor Dick and I would be happy to talk to you about that. But can I encourage you that if you're losing that battle and it's a private battle, you need someone else to come alongside and help you. You need God's help to overcome it, but you need someone else to come alongside and keep you accountable. You can't fight that battle alone because what happens, because it's happened to me and it's happened to all of us, we fight the battle alone. We fight the battle in silence and in secrecy. And we lose the battle. Because we don't have someone that we've let in to be there to ask us the tough questions. How are you doing? How are your thoughts? How are your, how's your heart? How, you know, uh, how have you been with your eyes? What have you been looking at? Like I said before, there's a battle for your heart and for my heart. And Satan knows where, we're, where our weak spots are. And that's where he attacks. And I guarantee that's one of the weak spots that he attacks most of us in the area of sexual purity. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your challenge to us to pursue purity and to pursue purity with our lives in regards to, to sexual temptation and sexual sin. And Father, you know that many of us as we come into this room, we, we've been in this struggle and 
we're at different places in this struggle. Some of us are, 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 are overcoming this struggle and, and overcoming this temptation. Lord, we praise you for that. Some of us are in the thick of it, and it's tough, and we're losing ground. And Father, I pray that for those that you would just come alongside and encourage and strengthen. And Lord, I pray that as your children, you would help us to see sexual sin like you see it, like you communicated even to us this morning. That you're not just simply concerned about our external actions, and, 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 but Lord, most importantly, you're concerned about the condition of our heart. You desire our hearts to be pure. And Lord, I pray that that would be our desire. Pray that we would see sin like you see it. That we wouldn't compromise, that we wouldn't justify it, that we wouldn't entertain ourselves with sin. But we'd seek to eliminate it from our life. Father, we know we can't handle this battle on our own, so we ask that you would give us the strength to overcome. We pray you give us the courage to maybe go to to one of our friends if we're struggling and say, hey, you know what, you need to keep me accountable. I'm struggling this in this area. I need you to ask me some questions, some direct questions on a weekly basis. Lord, I pray that we won't leave this building today buying into the lie of self-righteousness. That I didn't do the act, so therefore I'm all right. Because God, you want our hearts, not just our actions. Thank you for your word, Jesus. Thank you for your clear communication of what you expect from us. Thank you for the power that you give us to live it out. In Jesus' name.